Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. So Shabbat Shalom. We're okay with the sound and everything? Okay. So uh, we're in an ongoing series on evangelism, which was a perfect segue with what Patricia shared. Uh, this is part six. I want to look at the issue today of unbelief, uh, both our own lack of belief and also how to witness to believers, uh, un- witness to unbelievers, people who, who, who lack faith. And as our text today, I want us to look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the first-hand primary source for the life of the Messianic Jewish believers in the first century. It's an account of how they turn the world upside down uh, for the gospel of Yeshua the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and how they reached out to their fellow Jews, and how we can do the same thing, just like Patricia was saying. Uh, And we also see in this passage we're about to read, which is from Acts 4, uh, the first persecution of the believers, the first open hostility against the gospel, which we also need to learn from. Let's turn me to Acts 4, beginning in verse 1. We have it on the overhead as well. Uh, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed. Why? Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, because, and because it was evening, they put him in jail till the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the Torah teachers met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John uh, brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, if we're being called to account today uh, because of a, a kindness, an act of kindness shown to a lame man, and being asked to explain how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It's by the name of Yeshua, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you today healed. Yeshua is the stone the builders rejected, which has now become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Kepha and Yochanan, Peter and John, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, uh, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Yeshua. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there, right there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them uh, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. They conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Anyone living in Yerushalayim knows they performed a miracle, a notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Yeshua. But Shimon and Yochanan replied, What is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Amen. Now, what do we see here in this, uh, this persecution? 
Uh, it illustrates actually what Yeshua said earlier in, 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 in John 15, in Yochanan, John 15, uh, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, uh, it would love you as its own. But I've chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. But this is to fulfill what was written. They hated me without a cause. Now this passage in Acts 4 illustrates what Yeshua had just said here in John 15. Because what we learn here is that unbelief, uh, the opposition to the gospel, uh, it's complex, it's, it's multifaceted. It's not just a lack of something, unbelief. It's actually the presence of something else. Uh, and we put it on the overhead as well. Because it's a, it's a spirit. It's a spirit of hostility and confusion, deep and, per- and pervasive that results in unbelief. So in this passage here in Acts 4, we're going to see three things. We'll put it on the overhead. We're going to see the depth of unbelief, uh, the structure or the nature of unbelief, and finally, how Yeshua overcomes it. So let's start with the depth of unbelief. And by depth, I mean unbelief is far more than what it it purports to be. It usually purports to be merely intellectual, uh, but it's not. First, notice that those opposing the gospel had nothing in common with each other intellectually, except their opposition to the gospel. So, for example, look in Acts 4, verse 1. We see uh, listed uh, the priests, uh, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. They came up to Peter and John while they're speaking to the people. And then drop down to verse 5, Acts 4, 5, then we hear other people listed here. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the tour teachers met in Jerusalem. So we see all these different classes of people being referred to. And notice the Sadducees, they were the religious liberals of the day. Uh, they believed that morality was just something necessary for civic order. But they didn't believe in much of the Bible. They didn't believe in the supernatural or in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife or in much of a spiritual world. They were primarily secular. They were rationalists. They were what we would call religious liberals. Then you had the Torah teachers, the the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists. They were hyper-religious. And they also, they believed in miracles, and in angels, and in the resurrection, uh, and in the afterlife. Then you had the rulers, and the captain of the temple guard. You had the military, uh, and the politicians, you had all these different groups that had nothing in common. Uh, they hated each other. They had no intellectual common ground, but they were absolutely united in their opposition to the gospel. Now, it's typical of a people who don't believe the gospel to say, well, the reason I don't believe, it, it's simple. We now have modern knowledge. You know, we're educated people, and educated people all know there are things in the Bible we just can't accept today. Uh, we now know this, and we now know that. Uh, and that's why we don't believe. It's, it's an intellectual problem. Well, with all due respect, it's not. And here's why. People have always said, now we know. And every hundred years or so, they say, now we know. But every hundred years, what they seem to know keeps changing. And the thing you now know that you think disproves the gospel will be totally disproven and discredited a hundred years from now. So, for example, about a hundred years ago, all the leading secular critics of the gospel, all the leading intellectuals said, we don't need God to create a great society. We now have science. We study cultures and societies. We see how people interact. 
Uh, and we're going to use these scientific principles to build the perfect society. Uh, we're going to get rid of poverty and crime and mental illness because of our secular science. So we don't need God or the Bible or Yeshua. And today, after the last hundred years of probably the bloodiest century in all of human history, we laugh and we cringe at the ridiculousness of their secular pronouncements from a hundred years ago. Uh, and their naive faith in science and the perfectibility of man. And all the leading secular thinkers today mock uh, the secular pronouncements from a hundred years ago. It's been completely repudiated. And yet, the critics today are just as hostile to the gospel. In other words, the critics today and the critics a hundred years ago have no common ground, but they both hate the gospel. Now, what does this show? You can't say the reason I'm not a Yeshua follower is because of this, this modern knowledge I now have. Because every century it says the same thing. And the so-called knowledge that they're relying on constantly changes. And constantly is shown later on to be completely false uh, and repudiated. So they can't, this can't be the real reason people oppose the gospel. Well, I'm educated. They say, so what? Paul was the most educated Jew of his day. Look at all the great intellectuals who were believers. Uh, Augustine, Aquinas, Michelangelo, Pascal, Bach, Handel, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, countless others. So it's not an issue of intellect versus unintellect, or education versus uneducation. Something else is going on much deeper in those who reject Yeshua. It's not an intellectual issue. It's highlighted in Acts 4.2 where it says, that the, says of the Jewish leaders, and put on the overhead, please, Acts 4, verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection of the dead. They were greatly disturbed. And this word disturbed in the Greek actually means uh, to be greatly, uh, deeply grieved uh, and troubled uh, and offended, angered, uh, stirred up inside. Uh, uh, and and uh, the only way to understand the Pascal's famous wager is in light of this. You know, Pascal's wager says this. Uh, Yeshua followers, well, we can't scientifically prove the gospel, but we believe in God and Yeshua and that there's a day of judgment coming. And the non-believers, they can't empirically prove their position, that there is no God or, and no atonement in Yeshua and no judgment. But here's the question, he said. Who stands to lose more if they're wrong? If Yeshua followers are wrong, they only lose finitely in the sense of not doing some things their flesh might want them to do. But if the, non-belie- the non-believers are wrong, they lose infinitely eternal hell and judgment. So Pascal says, it's therefore irrational to be cavalier about the claims of the gospel. It's irrational to be indifferent. Now Pascal, he was this brilliant uh, 17th century mathematician and philosopher and scientist in France. But his unbelieving intellectual friends in the 1600s of France, instead of saying, well, I better look into the claims of the gospel, they would just scoff at him and jeer and mock and say, ha, the gospel is ridiculous, foolishness. Like the religious leaders in Acts 4, they were disturbed. They were disgusted. They said, how absurd to believe in the gospel. You know, we're modern, educated, 17th century people. <laughs> So Pascal said, but given what's at stake, it's irrational to be so indifferent, to be so cavalier. So therefore, there's something else driving my friends towards their religion of atheism. 
towards their dismissal of the gospel. And it's not, it's not their reason. Behind their spirit of unbelief is their deep desire to stay in control, to live however they want to live and to justify it, to not bend the knee to God. Uh, and, and, and that's why my intellectual friends are so disturbed by and so hostile to the gospel. Unbelief, therefore, is not merely the absence of something. It's the presence of something else. There's something in the human heart driving us to be hateful toward the gospel. So that's, that's, and that's number one, the depth of unbelief. And the overhead, please. Number two, what's the, the structure? What's the nature of unbelief? What's it really made of? Look again at Acts 4, verse 2. The priests and the temple guard and the Sadducees were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection of the dead. And when they question Peter and John, they say in Acts 4, verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? And the Greek, the last word in the verse in the Greek is actually the word you. Uh, by what power or name did this you? Emphasizing the word you. Speaking of Peter and John and the apostles. In other words, who do you think you are? By what power or in what name or in what, on what basis do you proclaim these things? And the key is Acts 4 verse 13. When they saw the courage or the assurance or the confidence of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note these men had been with Yeshua. And then in Acts 4, verse 11, Peter responds by quoting from Psalm 118, which is very interesting, which is the first psalm we sang today, which I had no idea we were going to sing from Peter Chlu, right? Uh, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, years ago, Stephen Covey wrote this famous book called Seven Habits of, the, uh, of Highly Effective People. And he says, every person has a bottom line, which becomes their gestalt, which means their the shape or, or their form or the general quality or character of something, of, of their entire life. He's basically saying every person has a cornerstone. We're all builders. Peter says, the stone you builders rejected. Everyone has a cornerstone for their life. Everyone has a life system that they built. Uh, if, if you're sent, it's your center, it's your guiding life principle. It, it, there, there's a bottom line. There's something that makes, um, that you make your ultimate value. It becomes your gestalt. It becomes the basis of, of your, of your security, your wisdom, your power, your decision making. So for example, your cornerstone, the thing on which your life is built, uh, could be your education. Uh, I'm an educated person. Or it could be your morality. I'm a moral person. Or it could be your, your family. I'm a great family man. Or it could be your political cause. I'm for this or this political party. Or it could be your career. Or whatever it is, it becomes the cornerstone for everything in your life. It's your security. It's your confidence. So, for example, if you make your cornerstone your career or your education or your family, that's your confidence. That's the thing that makes you feel good about yourself. And it also becomes your wisdom. Because the way you understand all of life, uh, the way you decide uh, who the good people are and who the bad people are, the way you decide what's right and what's wrong with the world. So you look at the world, you see all these things wrong with it, right? And you've got a theory of what's wrong and why. Paul gets, this, gets to this in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says that the cross is an offense to both Jews and Greeks. 
you know, throughout the Mediterranean world in the, in the first century, every little town in the first century had a Jewish community in the, in the uh, diaspora uh, and a Greek community. Uh, and they, each community had their own gestalt, their own uh, life system, uh, worldview. Most of the Jews in, in the communities in the first century uh, were hardworking, working class people. Uh, they were merchants. They were generally very moral people. Uh, their cornerstone was their morality their hard, and their hard work. Most of them had only a minimum education, like the fishermen from Galilee. Uh, but the way they felt good about themselves, uh, their confidence came from saying, well, I'm a decent chap. I'm a straight arrow. I do my duty. I'm moral. I work hard. I don't put on airs. But the Greeks in the town, the Greeks were the educated, sophisticated class. Uh, they were the ones that, that sipped Chardonnay in the outdoor cafes. <laughs> and they sat around and discussed philosophy. Uh, and that's how they got their confidence and their courage. And they had their credentials, of course. They had their academic degrees, and they wrote books and papers and poetry. So the Jews said, what's wrong with the world is that people aren't decent and moral like me. And the Greeks said, what's wrong with the world is people aren't educated and sophisticated like me. There are all these bourgeois bores. Whatever is the cornerstone of your life becomes your confidence, your wisdom, your gestalt, your center. Uh, and the gospel, though, shakes them all. Note that the gospel doesn't just offend them intellectually or theologically. They don't, for example, they don't talk about the resurrection here in Acts chapter 4. Because if they did, the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have had a big debate. That's not the real issue for why they were so disturbed. Because It wasn't because the apostles were talking about the resurrection. The real problem isn't intellectual or even theological. Rather, the gospel shakes up your entire life system. The gospel points to everyone's cornerstone, whatever it is, and says this is inadequate, woefully inadequate. Uh, it's ultimately just wood, hay, and stubble. And one day it will burn. It's all relying on your own righteousness and your own control. These apostles, they were unschooled, unlearned men. They were blue-collar fishermen from Galilee. Uh, they were from the boondocks. They hadn't gone to the right schools. They weren't recognized as religious leaders in Israel, in the Israeli hierarchy or establishment. But now, look at how bold they are, uh, how articulate, how powerful courageously proclaiming Yeshua the Messiah and Him resurrected. And they're filled with the Spirit. And what are they doing? They're healing the sick and the blind and the lame. Uh, they're preaching without a yeshiva degree. Uh, they're teaching the people. The old life system that uh, Peter and John had previously built their lives on has now been smashed by the coming of the kingdom and Messiah Yeshua. They now boldly proclaim the gospel, which says that all people are sinners. The gospel offends both the Jews and the Greeks. It confronts every life system, every worldview. The gospel comes to the Jew and says, yes, you are outwardly very moral, but before God, you're no better than the worst criminal. You're all sinners. Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. We all, we, we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. But if you repent and trust in Yeshua, 
uh, who's paid the penalty for your sins, uh, who's your Lord and your Savior, then you can be kings and priests and before God and His kingdom, no matter who you are or what you've done. And that message offended the Jewish religious leadership and the establishment. And then the gospel comes to the Greeks. And they're into sophistication and education. They're not into morality. They say, ha, morality, that's for the bourgeois. Uh, the important thing is enlightened views, uh, progressive views. And the gospel says to them, you may be educated, but before God, you're no better than the most ignorant, illiterate peasant. The most backwards hillbilly. It doesn't matter how enlightened or progressive you think you are. You're no better. We're all sinners. But there's salvation in Yeshua. Because he lived the life you should have lived. And he died the death that you deserved to die. And he paid the penalty that you could not pay. So there's now a way for you to be right with God if you turn from your sin, if you turn from yourself, if you turn to God and Messiah Yeshua. And this message offended the Greeks. Because the gospel isn't just a set of theological beliefs. The gospel goes much deeper. It comes after your cornerstone. Your entire basis for living. And it shakes you to the core. And unless you're a Yeshua follower, everyone has a cornerstone that's ultimately too weak for the freight and the weight of the building. So for example, if you built your cornerstone on your career, or your family, your education, or maybe it's your artistic or athletic ability, you're unstable. You built your life on sinking sand. And when the storms of life come, it will not stand. Your cornerstone is inherently unstable because it's subject to your performance. And it's subject to change in circumstances over which you have no control. So for example, if your cornerstone is, I'm a family man. I've got this great family. How do you know one of your children won't turn out bad or go off the path? Or if your cornerstone is your education and your expertise in a particular topic... How do you know that society's views on your area of expertise might not change in the future, leave you out in the cold? Any cornerstone other than Yeshua is inherently unstable. And unbelievers are offended by Yeshua followers. Why? Because Yeshua followers are secure and stable and confident in their cornerstone and at the same time incredibly humble. Now that these religious leaders, they were astonished when they saw the courage, the confidence of Peter and John. A believer is someone who says, I know that God loves me. I know that I'm saved. I know that I know God. And that confidence utterly confounds and irritates and disgusts unbelievers who, who can't understand it. Because every other corner, someone is based on, on, on my or someone else's performance. And therefore, no one can, can, can ever really, set, really be sure of where they stand. But Yeshua followers are people who've been so radically humbled, ironically, that they're sure. They're sure of God's love and acceptance. But outsiders, unbelievers, they see that as arrogant. So, for example, way back in 1741, Nathan Coles, this Connecticut farmer, and hearing George Whitfield preach, uh, wrote of his, of his conversion in his diary. He wrote this. My hearing George Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. And I saw by God's grace, my old foundations were torn up. And I realized my righteousness could not save me. 
That is the gospel. Your old foundations are torn up. You realize your former efforts to be right with God, to earn your salvation, they're all just filthy rags. And you humble yourself and you submit your life to Yeshua. And in Him and in Him alone, you now have the assurance of being right with God. So, for example, look at Cain and Abel. 1 John 3.13 says, Cain killed Abel, so marvel not that the world hates you. So here's Cain. He, he's offers, he offers an offering to God. He points to himself and his grain offering. He says, this is the thing I've done with the work of my hands. I'm a tiller of the field. Uh, uh, look, look, Lord, how productive I am. Look at me. Regard my offering. Regard the work of my hands. Abel comes along. He slays an animal. He says, Lord, I remember what you told mom and dad, Adam and Eve, uh, that someday a descendant would come who'd be wounded so that I could be forgiven. And I trust in that descendant, that wounded one, who'd be wounded like a sacrifice, which I now offer to you as a type. Abel looks to the grace of God. Cain looks to his works. As a result, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel knew that God accepted him. But Cain had no such confidence. And therefore, Cain hated Abel. But Abel loved Cain. And that's how you could tell whether your cornerstone is Yeshua or is just religion. Whether it's Yeshua or it's something else over which you maintain control. And that's why the religious leaders were so upset at Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John challenged their whole life system, utterly destroyed the cornerstone of religion that they were relying on. So Peter proclaims in Acts 4 verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. And non-believers say, that's the number one thing about Yeshua faith that I don't like. I can, I can handle everything else except that. If you just say that all good people could reach God, or that Yeshua is just one of the ways to God, then I could accept you and your faith. But if Peter and John had said that Yeshua was merely one of the ways to God, and that any good person could reach God, they would not have had that courage and that boldness. Uh, they, wouldn't have been able, they wouldn't have been preaching the gospel. When you say, let's just change this one little thing, what you really mean is, let's change the whole thing. Peter and John could be bold because they knew it was not their good deeds who saved them. They knew that their salvation rested in Yeshua alone and his finished work on the tree. When you say all good people can get to God, you're simply preaching what's called the religion of good works, the religion of human effort and achievement and self-righteousness. And Peter and John would never have had that boldness because they knew they weren't good. And I, too, I would hide in a corner because I know my own heart and how evil and dark it can be. And if you knew your own heart, I dare say you'd say the same thing. Let's return to our question now. Why do so many non-believers mock uh, and revile and despise Yeshua? Uh, what accounts for this? What, what's the spirit behind their rejection and their hostility? And the answer is that the claims that Yeshua, is, that, made, that Yeshua made is what we hate. So we do everything we can to, to oppose them and to undermine them. 
By the way, this is the reason a few years back for the popularity of, of the Da Vinci Code and the, the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, it was an attempt to undermine the Gospel. Why? Because at bottom we hate the exclusive truth claims of the Gospel. Why? Because they force us into an all-or-nothing decision. And we hate that. If Yeshua had simply said, I'm a teacher pointing the way to God, we could say, okay, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe some of what you say is true, maybe other parts are not. But when Yeshua says, I'm the Son of God, I'm the one and only unique Son of God, I am God in the flesh, God incarnate, Uh, I'm the Savior of the world, I'm the King of the Jews, I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords, then it's all or nothing. You can't just like Yeshua. You have to either completely adore Him, or you must despise Him. And we don't want that. Uh, We don't want to be forced into that choice. We want to keep our options open. Flannery O'Connor, she wrote a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's about this criminal, uh, this murderer, called the Misfit, uh, who has kidnapped and robbed and killed uh, most of this whole family. And now he's talking to the last one left, who's the grandmother. And the grandmother's pleading for her life. And the misfit and the grandmother have this dialogue. And the grandmother is very religious. And she, and she tells the misfit, oh, you need to pray more. I'm sure deep down you're really a very good boy. And she says, you need to pray to Yeshua. And, and then he explodes. And he says this, put on the overhead. He says, Yeshua? Yeshua threw everything off balance. If he did what he said, there's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, there's nothing to do but to enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing someone or burning down their house or doing some other meanness to him. He says, Yeshua threw everything off balance. And later on, Flannery O'Connor was writing to a friend uh, and she wrote this commentary on her own story. and put this in the overhead as well. She, she wrote this, the author. She says, the story is a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfits' more profoundly felt involvement with Messiah's action would set the world off balance for him. You see, the grandmother is like most of us. She's just religious. She's just nice. But the misfit knows it's all or nothing. He's been thrown off balance. He can't stay on the fence. Yeshua threw everything off balance. And that's what we can't stand. We don't want to have to despise him or totally worship him. We want to just listen to him, pick and choose, make up our own minds. But no. Yeshua throws everything off balance. And we hate that. And the hostility in our heart is drawn out by the magnitude of his claims and the exclusiveness of his claims. In uh, St. Augustine's uh, famous Confessions, he discusses why, as a boy, he broke into this pear orchard and stole all these pears. And he writes this, and put that overhead. He says, Now why did I break into the orchard and steal, steal the pears? When A, I wasn't hungry, And B, I hate pears. (laughs) The answer is, because someone told me I couldn't. The answer is, because it was forbidden fruit. And no one's going to tell me what I could or couldn't do. 
He says, I would have had no interest in those pears except that they were forbidden. He realized at the core of his heart, at the core of all of our hearts, at the core of your heart and mine is a little voice that says, no one tells me how to live. That something deep down within us says, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And when we're confronted with the claims of Yeshua, this innate rebellion and pride uh, and self-centeredness, it rears its ugly head. Our derision and our mockery shows we're naturally hostile to Messiah because we can't stand the magnitude and the exclusiveness of his claims. So we repel from this all-or-nothing decision that he confronts us with. Now, if you're more like the nice grandmother, if you say, I don't despise Yeshua, I don't hate him, but I also don't totally center my life on him, if it's not one or the other, uh, either you have no integrity, or you don't know who he claims to be and what he demands of you. Listen to Yeshua. Read the Gospels. And the same thing will happen to you. Uh, it will happen to your heart. Because either you will end up hating and mocking him, or you will fall down and worship him. Because it's all or nothing. It's the only choice he gives you. So that's, the, that's number one, that's the depth of unbelief and, and the overhead. And number two, that's, that's the nature of unbelief. Let's quickly now look at number three. How Yeshua defeats a mockery and unbelief. Why did Yeshua take and accept and endure all the mockery, uh, humiliation, uh, and, and shame on the cross? This answer is actually beautifully illustrated in, in one of my favorite movies. It's an old 1938 black and white movie called Angels with Dirty Faces, starring Jimmy Cagney and Patrick O'Brien. They play these two guys who grew up together in what's known as Hell's Kitchen, this very seedy part of New York City. Jimmy Cadney uh, plays the guy who grows up to be the, the, the villain, uh, Rocky, Sell- Rocky Sullivan, this famous or infamous gangster. He's a braggart, he's full of himself, he's snarling, only Jimmy, it's only uh, uh, um, Jimmy Cadney can be snarling, <laughs> and he's violent. He's kind of a celebrity gangster. He kills anyone who gives him disrespect. And all the young kids in that part of New York City look up to him. He's kind of an exciting role model. And the other boyhood friend, uh, Jerry Conley, played by Patrick O'Brien, he grows up to be a priest. And he works in the slums of New York. He works with the at-risk kids, the kids who, who, are, who are poor, who are going in a bad direction, and who all look up to Rocky Sullivan. The priest, Jerry Conley, he's trying to uh, reform the kids, uh, get them to go straight. And he's not having much success. Uh, now, eventually, after a big shootout, Rocky is caught by the police. He's convicted of murder. He's sentenced to the electric chair. And the night before he's about to be executed, his old boyhood friend, Father Jerry, comes to see Rocky. And Father Jerry says, Rocky, I've got a favor to ask of you. And Rocky says, I'm going to be executed tomorrow. What possible favor could I do to you? <laughs> and here's the, here's the dialogue from the movie. Father Jerry, Rocky, suppose I asked you tomorrow to be scared. Suppose the guards have to drag you out of your cell, screaming for mercy. Suppose you went to the chair, yellow, a coward. Rocky, Jerry, yellow? Me, die yellow? What's the matter with you, Jerry? Jerry, 
I want you to have courage, but I want a different kind of courage, Rocky. I want you to have the kind that's born in heaven. Not your swagger and bravado. I want the kind of courage only you and I and God will ever know about. I want you to let the boys of my neighborhood down. You've been a hero to these kids. Hundreds and hundreds of others like them all your life. And now you're going to be a glorified hero in your death. And I want to prevent that. They've got to despise your memory. That's the, their only hope for turning their life around. They've got to be ashamed of you. Rocky, you're asking me to pull an act? To turn yellow? So these kids will think I'm no good? You're asking me to throw away the only thing I've got left? You're asking me to crawl on my belly? The last thing I do in my life? Nothing doing. You're asking too much. You want to help these kids? Find another way. Now, why is Father Jerry asking this of Rocky? He's saying, Rocky, it's them or you. If you go out in glory, they're going to go down to a life of shame. But if you're willing to go down to a life of shame and throw away your, your reputation and be humiliated, they can be saved. Will you do it for them, Rocky? And what does Rocky say? He says, no, no way. It's all I've got left. Are you kidding? So the next morning at dawn is the execution. And Father Jerry comes with the guards. They bring Rocky out of his cell. And he comes out with a snarl, like as only Jimmy Cadney can do. Uh, and he actually slugs one of the guards. <laughs> and Rocky says, you know, I'm going to go out the way I came in. Excuse me. <laughs> but when he actually gets to the electric chair... Suddenly, he begins to squirrel and scream like a, like a little kid. Uh, and he screams and begins to cry like a baby. Uh, and he snivels and he cowers and he cries out, No, 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 I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Please don't kill me. Oh, I'm scared to die. And he completely melts down and becomes an absolute coward. And he's crying and screaming as they strap him into the chair. And all the newspaper reporters are there writing it all down diligently. And the guard then finally pulls the switch and he dies. At the end of the movie, Father Jerry, seeing all this, looks up to heaven and smiles. It's an amazing movie. Just watching it kind of makes you want to be a better person, even though you're not in the movie. It's not your story. But guess what? The gospel says that you and I are in that story. We're those boys in Hell's Kitchen, influenced by Rocky Sullivan. We're those kids in the slums whose whole lives are about to go down to the, to the, to the toilet. It's either Yeshua or us. If he holds on to his glory, we go down to eternal shame. But if Yeshua goes down into eternal shame, we can receive his glory. Psalm 2 talks about uh, how the human race, how we think we know how to run the world. We try to throw off the bonds of God. So in Psalm 2, verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers all band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, saying, let's break their chains. Let's throw off their shackles. And then in verse 4, the Lord laughs at them, right? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs 
at them. Because <sighs> it's just laughable that the human race thinks that it can run things, that, that we don't need God. And there's a great, what's called a recitative in Handel's Messiah, uh, based on this verse from Psalm 2, and put it overhead. It's, uh, Handel says, uh, He shall laugh them to scorn, he shall have them in derision. Speaking of God, we deserve shame. We deserve to be laughed at. We deserve to be mocked. But Yeshua is the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says that when the servant of the Lord comes, he'll be despised. He'll be rejected. We'll esteem him not. And then look at Isaiah 50 verse 6, which is amazing because we had this in the Haftorah today, which I had no idea it was today's Haftorah. Isaiah 50, verse 6, Messiah says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Yeshua didn't just die, he was shamed. Why? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeshua took the shame. He had his reputation destroyed. He had his name destroyed. So that you and I can have a name with God forever. Revelation 2 said, All Yeshua followers one day will receive a little white stone and written on it a name that only we know. A secret name. It is indicates that no matter what others, it doesn't matter what others say about you. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. God loves you. If you're in Messiah, you have the applause of God. You have the accolades of God. Yeshua took the shame that you deserved so you could have God's glory forever. Worship Him today. Humble yourself before Him today. Share with others what He has done for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let the music team to come on up. Father, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. We humble ourselves today before you. And every time we contemplate you, and every time we see more and more what Yeshua has done for me, uh, I'm in awe, Lord. Uh, and amazement and astonishment of his love and his sacrifice. How you, Yeshua, became sin for us and endured the mocking and the spitting and then the torture and the pain and the shame and the humiliation and the emptying of all your glory and reputation. And your death on the tree. And most of all, you're enduring the wrath and justice of God that we deserved. So that we could be cleansed. And purified. And forgiven. And robed in your righteousness. Uh, and be saved and redeemed and bought back. And ransomed. You be adopted into your family. And share your glory. And bask in your presence. And be in covenant relationship with you. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief. Increase our faith. Give us mountain-moving faith. Uh, like what we see from, from the Messianic Jewish role models or, or in the book of Acts. We repent, Lord, of our spirit of control. We repent and power and our pride and ego. We repent, Lord, of our rebellion and self-centeredness and wanting to be our own boss our own Lord and Savior. We humble ourselves, Lord. We submit to you, King Yeshua. Reign over us. 
rule over every area of our life. Be sovereign, Lord, over our thought life, our intentions and our motives, our dreams and aspirations, what we watch, what we read, uh, our sex life, our speech, our job, our education, uh, our, our deeds, our relationships. We submit to you, Yeshua, as our cornerstone, as the center of every nook and cranny of our life. Help us, Lord, now to die to self and take up our cross and follow you. For it's in your name we pray, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.